I've been out of the military for four and a half years, and therefore I need to start with a bit of a health warning. I am not intimately connected with the detail of the current debate that's going on, and it would be quite wrong of me to comment on it in detail. I indeed recall when I found myself close to the top of the defence tree how irritating it was when retired senior officers pronounced on, mat on the matters that we were wrestling with, often with the best of intentions, but not always providing the support that our arguments, to our arguments that we needed. So I'm going to try not to fall into that trap. But after 40 years of service, uh, and more recently the work that I've been doing to assist the Ukrainian Minister of Defence to reform their armed forces, I think I'm a reasonably well-informed observer of the shifting strategic tectonic plates. Uh, I'm going to have to try and work this. I'm not used to doing everything on my own, even after four and a half years, but I will try and, I'll try and get the slides right. Now, when I left the army, I had a, a couple of enduring itches. First, I was struck by the general tone of the public narrative about servicemen and women, which I felt focused on sympathy rather than respect. Now, this has a political connotation since it is linked to the public's lack of understanding of the operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. But it has been exacerbated by a media narrative which delights in highlighting the stresses and strains of military service and seems to be able to make a minority view appear much more mainstream than the reality. It is also reinforced by the plethora of charities which have sprung up, such as Help for Heroes and my brother's charity, Walking with the Wounded. They have been amazingly successful and they've done a great deal of good but they've also lodged something in the public consciousness that risks us being seen as victims and liabilities, both to society and more particularly to employers. Of course, there are a few people who are seriously damaged, both physically and mentally, by the experiences that they've had, and they deserve as much support as we can possibly give them. But in fact, the vast majority of the service and ex-service community offer the country a remarkable asset. These are people who have been trained to operate in the most extreme circumstances and over the campaigns in Iraq and Afghanistan have, have proved that they can do it. And there is, in my, need and, uh, in my opinion, a need to recalibrate the narrative. The work that is being done to encourage employers to take veterans seriously is as good as far as it goes. But there is much more that could be done. And in my view, the Armed Forces Covenant has always struck me as a rather limp, patronising document, which does little more than encourage warm words and photo opportunities. My small part in trying to shift perceptions has been to set up a charity that uses a military approach to conduct disaster relief. Team Rubicon was set up in America by two ex-US Marines after the earthquake in Haiti in 2010. It's now got 50,000 members there, and we brought it to the UK after the Nepal earthquake. Now, two and a half years later, we've got 2,000 members. We have deployed 348 volunteers. Sorry about the precision. I must have looked at the latest thing on the website. But we've deployed 348 volunteers to 16 international and three responses in the United Kingdom, with our volunteers contributing over 46,500 hours of much-needed aid and support. And currently, we're responding to the Caribbean hurricanes and have sent over 70 volunteers 
to help in the immediate aftermath of the storms. Ex-servicemen and women make up about 75% of the volunteers, and the rest are first responders or just civilians who are up for a challenge. And their willing, willingness to drop everything, they're all volunteers, to help others, to operate effectively in extremely challenging circumstances, reminds me, and I hope you, of the potential that our veterans offer society in general. Now, my second ditch on leaving the service was a nagging doubt that the model for intervention that I had taken part in, particularly in the latter part of my career, was not fit for purpose. And it is this that I would like to concentrate on for the rest of my talk. During 40 years of service, I experienced a huge amount of change. And of course, change is very difficult to, experience, to, uh, to identify when you're experiencing it, and only really evident when you step back and review what you've been doing. So for this reason, I'm going to start by highlighting four milestones in my career, which will then set the context for subsequent comments. I'm then going to talk about the threat and the contemporary operating environment, and then I'm going to highlight three areas where I believe we could focus our attention if we're going to meet the demands of defense and security in an unstable world. And these are to reconsider how we intervene, to stress the requirement for proper situational understanding, and to emphasize the need for effective delegation. It is early autumn in 1974. The dreary streets of Belfast are once again being soaked by rain. In my mind, this is a sepia scene. The terraced rows of houses down along St. James's Street, just off the Falls Road, stretch down to a roundabout at the start of the M1. On the other side of the motorway, through the mist, you can just see the village, a staunchly Protestant estate that is also in our area of responsibility. As we patrol down the street, women, probably my age and a little bit older, are shouting abuse at us. Every so often, two of them bang dustbin lids on the ground. And if we get too close to them, they will spit at us. There are four of us, and then there are another four men moving down a parallel street with a pig humber armoured car circling around, which is intended to cut off anybody who tries to shoot at us. Despite the high levels of unemployment, there are not many men about. Internment, which was introduced three years ago, means that many of them are locked up without trial. About 1% of our life here can be intensely exciting. The rest is mundane and repetitive. My fellow platoon commanders and I are a little uneasy about what we're being asked to do. This is, after all, the United Kingdom. When we were at Sandhurst, our riot control training was born out of the empire. We were told to threaten the ringleaders, oddly usually a man in a red shirt, over a megaphone that they would be shot if they did not disperse. We have just been retrained for the particular circumstances in Belfast by the Northern Ireland training team at Hythe and Lyd in Kent. And this pre-deployment course, specifically for what we're doing in Belfast, has been going on for the last two years. And it has changed our behavior to a degree. But the police cannot enforce the law here. They are too frightened to operate in this bit of Belfast, and we are not trained to be policemen. 
If we're put under pressure by the locals, the escalation from baton to rubber bullet to rifle, fired under the terms of the yellow card, can be extremely quick. And the enemy can take his time to select the position where he's going to shoot at us. This patrol is going to continue on down to the motorway, and then when we get into the village, we will stop for tea and cakes in one of the Protestant houses, where we will be very welcome. Tonight, when I get back to the base and meet up with my fellow platoon commanders, we're going to wonder briefly whether we're doing the right thing. It won't bother us particularly. We are of an age where red, we're red-blooded and we feel invincible. We believe that we're doing a good job, certainly to the best of our ability. Our riflemen are professional, and we're following the orders of our commanding officer. And after all, he is the boss that matters. It's now 1987. The harvest has just been completed on the North German plain. I'm standing alongside my brigade commander on a track overlooking stubble fields interspersed with ditches and with hills in the distance. He is briefing the annual staff ride from the 1st British Corps, while I, as a major, point out features on an enlarged map that we've propped up in front of open-sided four-ton trucks. These are being used as a makeshift seating stand. We're looking out over the Water Sandwich, an area of flat land between the Salzgitter Zweig Canal and the River Innerster. This is the principal killing ground in the core main defensive position, and it is where we will bring the Soviet hordes to a shuddering halt if they have the temerity to attack us. The top brass, there must be seven or eight generals sitting in armchairs, which we've brought out from the mess and make up the front row, are listening carefully. I suspect that this is mainly to see if my boss performs well, this is a big moment in his annual appraisal, rather than to consider the plan, which they all know backwards, since they've been fighting this Cold War throughout their careers. The corps and divisions that they command are extraordinarily well equipped and drilled. They spend all of their time preparing to fight what is termed a high-intensity conflict against the Warsaw Pact on a battlefield that will have been swept of all its distractions. Even the refugees and the prisoners will be dealt with by somebody else. These guys are considered masters of their art, but none of them are old enough to have fought in World War II. They do have a clear purpose, the threat is real, and it binds together an alliance which has been central to the defense of the West since 1949. In the group, there are two Air Force, officer, Air Force officers, three Germans, and a Belgian. The audience is 50 strong. Those people will say nothing. The chain of command is all British. It's based on a very strict hierarchy. It's tested regularly in command post exercises and readiness is verified by no-notice call-outs called Active Edge. Our secrets are all on paper, they are documented very carefully, and they're stored in cabinets. We take our role very seriously, and although we know that the Soviets are able to concentrate considerable mass, we do believe that we have the skill, the equipment, and the leadership to defeat them. We will never be tested. The Revolutionary United Front in Sierra Leone have been defeated. 
They're being forced back into the Kono district where the war started. It's the 15th of October, 2001. I've been President Kaba's military advisor for the last six months, and I'm commanding a large training team and an over-the-horizon reserve, which has its joint task force headquarters in Freetown. That term means it doesn't exist, but they think it does. I'm driving down the hill from the presidential palace where I've just finished the nightly meeting in the president's parlor. Slightly bizarrely, while this was going on, we were overlooked by a chap called Ainsley Herriot, who was hosting Ready Steady Cook on a widescreen television just over the president's right shoulder. Sound was turned off. I feel a real buzz. My actions are genuinely helping to make a difference. The president has agreed to a draft paper that I've just prepared for him to send to the UN Secretary General Special Representative, a Nigerian diplomat called Olumi Adeniji, which states that whatever the UN's position, the Sierra Leone Armed Forces will be advancing to take up positions on all of their country's borders within the next 14 days. There are terms for the IUF, but they have to disarm. We are using the Sierra Leone Armed Forces, closely mentored by British officers, as a stick to beat the RUF, while the 17,500 strong United Nations mission in Sierra Leone sits on its metaphorical butt, hamstrung by a mandate that does not allow it to take the initiative. We have a very tense relationship with the UNAMSIL, but coincidentally, I have found that I was at the British Staff College with the force deputy commander a Nigerian called Martin Agwai, and this is hugely beneficial to help build bridges between the key stakeholders. Importantly, SRSG Adeniji knows the region and the people, and he has considerable credibility as a Nigerian, who the other West Africans defer to, and he negotiates very effectively with the rebels. He is much better at it than we could ever be, and we, the British, are much more effective as advisors to the Sierra Leoneans and turning them into a credible fighting force, which the UN mission is never going to be. The High Commissioner, High Commissioner and I are being given considerable freedom by London, who are distracted. The permanent joint headquarters have their eye office ever since they launched an operation into Macedonia to disarm rebels there in late August. And then 9-11 happened. This has sucked up all of their staff effort, and I'm hardly ever contacted, and it makes life much easier. <laughs> if I want to get any messages into London, by far the most effective way to do this is through the High Commissioner, who has a direct link to Jack Straw. And if we need to, we can get something considered at Cabinet level, which would never make its way through the tortuous MOD chain. In Freetown, there is a real sense of shared purpose amongst the British and smattering of international advisers. We all get on, we trust each other, and we know what's happening. It really does feel as if we have a chance of building a foundation here for lasting peace. The only slight frustration has been that the newish DFID has been slow to delegate authority to its representatives in country. And the international community's coordination of the longer-term social and economic investment doesn't appear to be a priority. In 13 years' time, the Ebola, the Ebola virus epidemic will kill 4,000 people, 
highlighting how little we have actually done to build sustainable human security. Camp Bastion seems to grow by the day. The US Marine surge, which has been going on for the past month, since December 2009, is in full swing. I've just been asked to speak to a small group of riflemen from my regiment who have just completed their training and they are about to deploy to Sangin. They're standing at the back of a range in the heat. They look extraordinarily well equipped with uniform that has been specially designed for the condition, body armor, padding on elbows and knees, a new helmet which looks faintly German, clips for night sights, and an array of weapons, some of which I've never seen before, let alone fired. They look nervous. These are not the slightly cocky, self-assured people that one sometimes meets when a senior officer visits barracks. These riflemen are finely tuned for a fight, which they know they will have, and they are nervous. Of the group of 30 that I'm talking to, at least one is going to be killed and a number seriously wounded over the next six months. I've flown down to Bastion from the headquarters of the International Security Assistance Force in Kabul, a US NATO-led coalition of over 40 nations, where I'm serving as the deputy commander to a US general. As he conducted the operational planning to exploit the surge in US troops, he told me that his hand had been forced by the situation in this part of Helmand province. It is probably not where he would have chosen to focus his attention, but the situation now demands it because the insurgency here is gaining the initiative. When I talk to these riflemen, if I follow the UK line, I will explain that the mission in Helmand is making the streets of Britain safer. This has a hollow ring to it. We're not fighting Al-Qaeda here, but locals who resent foreign intrusion, particularly since it's messing up their ability to grow poppies, their most productive crop. But London is engrossed by Helmand. It's where the casualties are happening. It is the source of the vast majority of stories in the media. And this feels to me like a damage limitation exercise. They do in London recognize the link to Kabul, but it's complex and I sense that its value is largely seen as a way of resolving the challenges in Helmand rather than setting the conditions for the future of Afghanistan and the region. So I conclude by telling these riflemen that they are highly professional soldiers following in a great tradition, fighting for their mates and their regiment. It does feel like a more credible line. It resonates better and I hope it will help to stiffen resolve in the face of a very challenging enemy. I do feel an enormous sense of pride in these young women, men and women, many of whom have been recruited recently from disadvantaged areas of UK society. They have proved themselves in training, and I am supremely confident that they will do everything that we ask of them in combat. Now, the two immediate reflections on these four snapshots are how much things have changed since the early 1970s and how the interpretation of the threat drives everything. Now, I do realize that these are blinding glimpses of the obvious, but I think it's worth a moment's reflection. In the early stages of my career, the threat, the threat was clear and politically unambiguous. In Northern Ireland, there was UK cross-party consensus for the 38 years of the campaign which meant that the sacrifice of 1,114 British Security Force personnel 
of whom 722 were from the armed forces, was considered proportionate. The murder of a soldier in the 1980s really made the front page of a newspaper. The Cold War, which was for many the conflict that dominated their careers, was an extraordinary, largely theoretical standoff. And the economic policies which actually won the war were disconnected from the security operation. Thank goodness our plans were never properly tested, but the threat was real and caused us to keep 55,000 troops permanently based in Germany with an equipment program that was designed to keep us at the cutting edge of military technology. Indeed, our procurement of superior technology was one of the major justifications for our ability to deter the Warsaw Pact, since we believed it made up for our deficit in manpower. My goodness, how things have changed. The coalition in Afghanistan was not drawn, up, drawn together by a common interpretation of the threat. Even the British, who after the United States, were prepared to take the greatest level of risk with their forces, were not prepared to authorize any movement outside the boundary of their forces in Central Helmand without reference to the very highest levels of government. And then the balance of risk was decided not by the potential benefit to the coalition, but by the likelihood of casualties. This made the military commander's ability to counter a highly complex threat extremely challenging and depended almost entirely on the US willingness to deploy and maneuver large numbers of their own troops. It was the inputs, the limitations from capability or imposed on employment rather than the output, the need to create an environment that was sufficiently secure for others to build sustainable human security that drove much of our planning. The inability to, drive to achieve consensus on how best to deal with the conflict in Syria illustrates how difficult it is to justify a believable threat politically. Unlike in Helmand, it is now hard to explain how direct action could be directly in the interests of security at home. But even so, an ideology ferments. Thousands of innocent civilians are killed. And there's an exodus of people which generates a migration crisis on a scale that has a direct impact on security in Europe. The resurgent threat from Russia, which has caused plenty of comment, is not enough to trigger significant investment in armed forces. And terrorist attacks at home are treated largely by the intelligence and domestic security communities. Of course, there are plenty of other priorities for government, but their interpretation of the threat today does not provide sufficient justification for investment in armed forces. They do want to be seen to be playing a part in wider global security, but if the risks are high, the consequences of playing our part are not sufficiently compelling for the domestic political narrative to justify the blood that will have to be spilt. This is, of course, a dangerous position to be in. The threat is not clear, and this reduces the justification for the use of military force. But predicting the future is not easy, and there do seem to be plenty of risks which could manifest themselves in very unexpected ways. Climate change, competition for resources, ideology. The world is not in a particularly stable state at the moment, and instability many miles away from our shores will have implications, not least because the impact of this that this will have on friends and allies who we depend on for our general security. Ensuring that our insurance policy is appropriate and up-to-date seems to be a 
reasonable course to take. Now, as I've said already, I'm too far removed from the nuts and bolts of the current debate to offer any further informed comment on the detail. But I do believe that we should be very careful in assuming that we will not face an unpredictable and compelling threat which will cause our political leadership to turn on a sixpence and expect the military to spill its blood with whatever it has in its arsenal. As an aside, and to illustrate the fickle nature of political leadership, I was involved in the military response to the security of the 2012 Olympics. From the very outset, it was made clear by the Home Office that there was no requirement for anything other than specialist military support. I detected a philosophical undertone that was actively resisting our participation as if somehow we were still suffering from the fallout from the Peterloo Massacre. It was even suggested that we wore London 2012 tracksuits rather than uniforms, a proposal I simply ignored. <laughs> During the 12 months leading up to the Games, the level of support that we were required to give grew. And this was actively supported by LOCOG, the organization that ran the Olympics, but always reluctantly by government. On the 11th of July, 16 days before the opening ceremony, when G4S waved their white flag and announced that the venue security plan would not work, the volt-fast by our leaders was something to, be, to behold. I saw then how quickly you can come to be relied on and how there is some sort of expectation that when the chips are down, you will be able to magic something out of thin air. And this will happen again, and we have to do our very best to be ready for it. So I conclude that the threat does not at present provide sufficient justification for either the commitment of or investment in armed forces. So what? I'm going to confine myself now to three proposals which need not have significant cost implications, but which could help to prepare us better for the shocks of the future. And these are, as I've said before, a different approach to intervention, improving situational understanding, and delegation. I indicated at the beginning of my talk that I had been frustrated by my experience in the military interventions I'd taken part in over the latter stages of my career. We intervene too late. Often something must be done feels like the driver. Our approach is culturally insensitive. We're driven by domestic politics. We're too fixed by physical security, and our staying power is limited. The current political reaction to this experience has been that we're very reluctant to put troops in harm's way, and if we do, the scale and conditions of employment are very restricted. We're keen to develop mechanisms that deploy air power, provide training and elements of operational support, but don't put boots on the ground. Now, this is just a remodeling of the old approach to suit ourselves, and the risk is that we're going to be caught out in the wrong position when the circumstances suddenly change. I see a need for a fundamental shift in our approach to the way that we address inter intervention. There is a need for a carefully planned international cross-sector collaboration with individual states designed to strengthen social, economic, and security frameworks. And this is not primarily about physical security. We must now see how our defense is in the wider context of human security along the lines of the concept as it was defined by UNDP in 1994. The idea that an individual can be free from fear and free from want and thereby aspire to improve his or her lot is a compelling one. 
The original concept identified the threats to security in seven areas, economic, food, health, environment, personal, community, and political. And it's probably, this is probably dated, and we certainly ought to add information to the list. But by addressing each of these themes, it's possible to provide a much more balanced view on what needs to be done well before the intervention is required. But it still needs a campaign which has a defined objective, which is planned, resourced, and led. To do this requires some significant remodeling of our approach, and in particular, we have to integrate our efforts better, be more pragmatic about the cultural constraints that will exist, and change our view on time. As far as integration is concerned, this is not about defense, or indeed about Whitehall. There has to be a better understanding of the true meaning of multinational operations, which places more emphasis on building strategic consensus with contributors and the host or target nation, which respects the multilateral aspects of the complex contemporary security environment. For us, this means a much more sophisticated cross-government approach. If our system requires anything to be, everything to be driven by money, which it seems to, the pot should not be limited by the Conflict Stability and Security Fund, but should be broadened to include significant amounts, amounts of both the overseas aids and the defense budgets. And it has always frustrated me how little importance is given to the potential contribution that could be made by the private sector. And I do not mean private security. This is all about investing in social and economic program, regeneration. With regard to our cultural approach, I don't feel that the attempts by Western military coalitions to understand the populations they're supposed to be protecting cut the mustard. Yes, we've increased the amount of cultural pre-deployment training that takes place. Yes, we've tried to train more ling linguists. But I think this is always going to be superficial, or certainly risk being superficial, a sort of cultural fig leaf. I think we will always appear rather like Officer Crabtree, the gendarme in Allo Allo, no matter how hard we try. And my conclusion is that we need to accept, wherever possible, the priorities, if not the leadership, of the host nation, no matter what pressure this places on our, cult our own cultural principles. Why have I been involved in so many elections during my operational deployments? Why has the role of women been so high up on the agenda when men, women, and children can't move freely to buy their food? And how could wheat ever be an alternative crop for subsistence farmers growing the opium poppy? And then there is time or staying power. I've already alluded to the 38 years that Operation Banner lasted in Northern Ireland. This represented an extraordinary level of all-party political commitment. As a contrast, I remember discussing with senior members of the government in 2010 whether it was reasonable to plan to cease combat operations in Afghanistan at the end of 2014. My reply was that of course it was. We should be able to transition the responsibility for physical, physical security to better prepared local security forces in four years. But the defining requirement would be the extent to which the other aspects of human security could be improved, particularly political security and an appropriately stable civil society appropriately stable civil society. The conclusion is that contemporary coalitions have lacked the necessary patience to support the sustainable change required if human security is to be improved. 
This requires a multinational, multilateral approach that goes with the grain of the environment in which we are operating. If we can set realistic targets for sustained development, we will have a far better chance of success. But be very clear, this approach still requires a foundation of physical security, which may require the application of military combat capability, and if this is to be successful, it will have to be properly resourced, it will be nasty, and it will cause casualties. The highly complex operating environment drives the need for even more emphasis on what US military jargon describes as situational understanding. As the Duke of Wellington said in 1852, all the business of war and indeed all the business of life is to endeavor to find out what you don't know by what you do, and that's what I called guessing what, what was at the other side of the hill. Today we have very little difficulty looking over the hill. The challenge is to know what you're seeing, to process it in time, and to act decisively with an appropriate response. Now, I am concentrating on here on the observe and orient phases of Colonel John Boyd's OODA loop, where he recognized during aerial combat in the Korean War what the human in the loop was as important as the relatively, relative technological capabilities of the combatants. In his case, it was driven by the need to react more quickly and decisively than the opponent by making superior judgments about the situation. This was a relatively straightforward engagement between two parties, the F-86 Sabre and the MiG-15, but the latter was smaller and more manoeuvrable and was proving to be a challenging adversary. Today, of course, there is a great deal of information, more information available. There are countless OODA loops functioning in sequence and in parallel, decision points that are unlikely to sit in a neat logical sequence, and the consequences of each decision has multiple outcomes. For this reason, we have to give understanding what is going on a far greater priority than was the case when I was serving. The speed and complexity of the passage of information is breaking down conventional hierarchies. Of course, this is partly about investing in intelligence and specialist and sophisticated technologies, but it is just as importantly about changing the cultural approach to information by ensuring that there is an ability to collaborate effectively vertically through the chain of command and horizontally with all the partners, stakeholders, and other interested parties. The vertical challenge is how to enable the necessary military hierarchy, which, if plans are to be executed effectively, has to limit conceptual and geographical responsibilities. But at the same time, an open information environment has to be created which ensures that everyone can get timely, information, uh, timely access to the information that they need so they properly understand the situation before they decide or integrate their plans with other critical actors. The solution to this challenge will be partly technological. It has to enable open systems architecture while allowing certain types of information to be protected. It will probably require best practice to be drawn from the commercial sector, and it will require a fast and flexible, a flexible and fast-moving approach to procurement, something which always seemed to be a challenge throughout my career. But for me, the most important thing is cultural change. Importantly, I saw plenty of this on operations. 
By 2011, British forces in Afghanistan were employing very effective collaborative planning techniques, which speeded up their operational tempo significantly. General Stan McChrystal introduced, in, introduced a situation awareness room into his headquarters, a control room with the very latest information technology, where he expected his command team to work together as a matter of routine and course. But the concept was resisted by senior commanders who were more comfortable if they were surrounded by their own staff in their own space. And it never really took off, but it was the right idea ahead of its time. The big issue for me was that the management of information and the desire to achieve a high level of situational understanding on operations was not matched by the same culture at home. As a senior commander, my situational understanding was nothing like as good as it should have been. The layers of staff below me would delay issues coming to my attention unless they could be properly presented. And ironically, when it was too late then for me to add any real value to the decision. It was as if the institution was trying to protect me from the complexity and spoon-feed me so that I was able to swallow. But in fact, I should have been getting involved early, in part so I had a reasonable working knowledge of what was going on, but also that, so that I could identify and establish priorities and give early direction when appropriate. And there is a premium for wisdom and experience, which was not, in my view, being applied to the decisions that were being made. I believed at the time that the same challenges existed above me and right above me. It is critically important for the success of our defense and security apparatus to ensure that the decision-making process in the ministries are as effective as they can be. The contemporary environment makes it critically important to ensure that cross-departmental relationships are supported by a high level of situational understanding and decisions are informed by highly attuned OODA loops. The last point that I would like to make is the need to delegate effectively. This is not something we're able to do well at the moment. But if we were, it could transform our ability to operate and it would help enormously to effectively take account of the demands of human security in the multinational, multilateral environment. In the current circumstances, the theater level is where the majority of influences and influencers come together. Proper delegation to a representative at this level ensures good situational understanding, allows better coordination and collaboration, and the most effective use of the national assets that have been allocated. Interestingly, our experience in Northern Ireland provides an excellent example of how well this can work, even if it took a little time to establish. Here, the senior military commander was given considerable autonomy. He had his own budget, which covered operations, training, logistics, and even research. The decisions that he made were driven directly by the outcomes he wanted to achieve. He was co-located with the police, the security services, and they were all responsible to a government minister. And the economic and social programs that were designed to build sustainable human security were being implemented right next door to them. 
I found myself in a similar position in Sierra Leone. I sensed that this was more by accident than by design, but the close working relationships with the, all the agencies in Freetown, the lack of capacity in the permanent joint headquarters, and our ability to get a cross-sector message up to the cabinet quickly meant that we were left largely to get on with it with de delivering the strategic intent. But in Iraq and Afghanistan, the reverse was the case. All of the major influences were represented in Kabul. It was here, the theater level, where they came together and where the effective implementation of a comprehensive operational plan that was synchronized with the host nation could be, ex could be executed. I know that this would have been no easy feat, but it would have been considerably easier if the other principal nations, other than the US, who were contributing to the campaign, could have subscribed to this approach. But with the Germans far more worried about what was going on in Mazar Sharif, the Canadians in Kandahar, and the British in a small part of Helmand, it was never going to be possible to get proper delegated authority to the level where the majority of the multinational and multinational in, multilateral influences came together. I found it intensely frustrating that the CDS at the time would ring the brigade commander in Helmand on most Mondays before the operational chiefs of staff meeting, but he never rang to find out what was going on across the country as a whole. This meant that the discussions that then took place around the chiefs of staff table and the direction which came out of them were all about a tactical battle without sufficient operational or theater context. And I fear that this was also reflected at an even higher level, where everything revolved around Helmand and not the levers that may be pulled elsewhere to create the conditions for strategic rather than tactical success. So I think I've made it clear that I believe that better understanding and investment in what I term the theatre level is fundamental if we're to increase our effectiveness in the future. Now I'm going to make one punt, one easy step, which may be a tiny bit contentious. But the one easy way to trigger this would be to remove the permanent joint headquarters. I believe that the permanent joint headquarters is part of the problem, since I've always found it to be an unhelpful additional layer in the hierarchy. While it probably makes deployment, sustainment, and recovery of forces more efficient, it does not add value to the operational chain of command and it is very, very definitely not at the operational level of conflict. The reasons are that it tends to be distracted by tactical issues, it has too many areas of interest, and it is de detached from the critical cross-government and strategic multinational debate, therefore adding an extra unnecessary layer to the defense chain, which slows down the OODA loop and add adds nothing to situational understanding. From my perspective, reconsidering the requirement for the PJHQ would not only offer the opportunity for savings, but fundamentally it would provide a really good catalyst for reframing the British approach to the contemporary security challenge. I'm standing outside the main entrance to the Olympic Park. The airport-style security lanes are flowing smoothly as the public enter for the fourth morning of the 2012 Games. There haven't yet been any British gold medals, although this hasn't been spotted by the media, but the big news story has been the large number of vacant seats in stadiums. 
There is something of a holiday atmosphere. The venue security staff and the public conversation is very light-hearted. A member of the public comes up to me and thanks me profusely for all that we are doing, in his words, to save the Olympics. Returning to my opening remarks, this was an extraordinary reminder for me of the gulf in understanding between some of the institutions of state and the public. For the last year, we had been told by the Home Office that these were to be the Blue Games. The militarization of the Beijing Games would not be repeated here. The military would not be needed. And now, 20 days after the contract to provide venue security had failed, we had mobilized over 20,000 troops. The public were delighted. Whether we deserved it or not, the general sense of reassurance that things would be all right now that the armed forces were involved was palpable. It made me realize, whatever the politics, the public do respect their armed forces, but we need to give them opportunities to do so. And they also believe that we can save them when the chips are down. And I do hope that this will be the case in the future. Thank you. Thank you.